And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. You see this? A family watching baseball on DirecTV with no satellite dish in sight. Let's heckle them. You call that changing the channel? Choke up on the remote, buddy. I hope getting all these games on DirecTV makes up for your mother not pre-chewing your sunflower seeds. DirecTV has the most MLB games. Call 1-800-DIRECTV. Claim based on total games carried on sports networks. Sports availability varies by zip code and requires choice package. Terms or restrictions apply. Hello and welcome to the Metrospective presented by Topps. Check out Topps Project 70 celebrating 70 years of Topps baseball cards. I'm Ted Berg. I am joined on the line by the Athletics Mets beat writer Tim Britton. And Tim, we have some news this morning as we record on Tuesday, May 4th. Yeah, you know, right after we talked last podcast about why neither of us would fire hitting coach Chili Davis to this early, uh, the Mets fired hitting coach Chili Davis uh, late Monday night. They fired him and assistant hitting coach Tom Slater. You know, this came after uh, a weekend in which the Mets looked better offensively. You know, they scored five runs against Philadelphia on Saturday, eight on Sunday, five more Monday night in St. Louis in a loss, uh, but also uh, at a time when they invented a fictional hitting coach named Donnie Stevenson, uh, who helped them with their hitting approach, which in retrospect didn't bode well for the current hitting coach st- hitting coaches on uh, staff. Oh, I guess. I, I thought it was just kind of a stupid, funny thing. Right. right I mean, yeah. I, I, mean I, yeah. I agree with you on that, that it, you know, my, my guess as to who I don't Donnie think Stevenson Pete Alonso is, came is out. A, yeah, I don't think Pete Alonso was like, hey, let's make up a new hitting coach so we can get the current one fired. That doesn't seem like his MO. Right. Uh, but, you know, and this, this was a move that was um, less about the on-field results to this point, according to, to acting GM Zach Scott, than it was about kind of a, a larger philosophical concern, which, you know, Chili Davis is not a guy who, who digs launch angle. Uh, he has been very clear about that throughout uh, his his career as a hitting coach, especially since launch angle became a thing in, in about 2016. Uh, and, you know, preaches line drives, preaches using the whole field, preaches situational hitting in a way that most hitting coaches, the way that, that hitting coaches that Sandy Alderson has hired in the past for the Mets, guys like Kevin Long and Pat Rustler, uh, didn't teach quite the same way. They, they were uh, guys who talked about getting your A swing on every pitch, you know, not changing too much with two strikes, uh, trying to, to get as much power into your swing as possible. Uh, Davis was different than that. Uh, and, and certainly Alderson uh, and Scott, who, you know, was in the Boston front office when they moved on from Chili Davis as a hitting coach after the 2017 season, even though his Red Sox had led baseball in runs and on-base percentage during his time as their hitting coach, uh, went, you know, wanted to go in a different philosophical direction. And that's why... Uh, Hugh Quattlebaum and Kevin Howard are the Mets hitting coaches and assistant hitting coach, respectively, uh, starting on Tuesday. And you mentioned the timing of it. And Zach Scott did say, you know, it's, it's almost like he listened to last week's show and anticipated all of our complaints because he said, well, this is not about overreacting to small sample sizes. This is not about the recent results on the field. But all that said, the t- how does the timing not seem curious here? It, it has like, it's not the same. But it almost has shades to me of like the Willie Randolph thing where it's like, why did they make these guys go to St. Louis first and then have a game where 
you know, like you said, they scored five runs. It wasn't, you know, the offense sort of went quiet a- after the third inning there, and that's not great. They scored five runs. They had seven hits. They had seven walks and, and a hit by pitch. Like, you can't really complain too much about the approach. And, and on the heels of a game in which they had 17 hits, probably their their best offensive output or one of their best offensive outputs of the season, uh, another a game before that in Philadelphia where they, where they also scored uh, five runs. I guess it was in New York. Um, against Philadelphia, it just, it feels, I, I don't know. Tell me why now. Yeah, I mean, it's the the third earliest, for, according to my research into this, which I did several years ago in preparation in case uh, a hitting coach got fired. Uh, it's the third earliest a hitting coach has been fired in the last quarter century. Uh, only two teams have fired their hitting coach earlier in the season than 23 games. Uh, and those were, I think, 20 and 21 games into the season, respectively. Uh, so it's it's really early. I don't know what the morality is of when you fire someone after you make the decision to fire them. Like if if that game Sunday is an afternoon game rather than a Sunday night baseball game, maybe the decision is made after that game, even if they, mm-hmm. they score eight runs and get 17 hits. You know, do you make the decision on a, a Sunday night and well, say, Well, that's no. a really that's a really tough time. That's a right. really tough spot to, to fire your hitting coach after you had 17 hits. Yeah. Do, do you make the decision at some point that, uh, you know, okay, we, we're going to make this change. Let's wait until they've got a day game Thursday in St. Louis. You start a homestand Friday night. That's when we're going to make the change, when, when you've got a little bit of a longer period and you're starting at home. But I, I think, you know, when you make the decision, you should probably move on it as quickly as possible. I, I think the, the issue with uh, with the Randolph firing you go back to is uh, it should have been done before the road trip to Anaheim, right. of all places, and, and not at, uh, you know, 2.30 East eastern time or whatever it was uh but so I, I think that's that's kind of how they were looking at it i mean it's hard because it's hard to sort of wrap your head around here right like and 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 that's the truth of it because you can say like okay well this is about philosophical differences but and while i realize look there was a lot of transition this this offseason they got new ownership they had a, a first new gm they had to fire that gm uh, rightfully they got a second gm like there were there was a lot of stuff going on and so you can say okay like we were really busy but your major league hitting coach is like a pretty big cog in a wheel you are hoping to win the World Series. And you would think if there were these underlying philosophical differences, that that would be something they would want to address before May. You know, like it's just that's that's what's curious about it to me is, it, OK, if this was a philosophical thing, then still, why now? You know, why why at this particular point in the season, why not? sooner why not before spring training like you you had to have it and like you said zach scott and chili davis have worked together before if he knew this is not my guy i don't know why not just rip that band-aid off sooner yeah you know uh it's funny i i was thinking actually uh, over the weekend of maybe writing a story that's kind of like the case for and against firing chili davis which is the same thing i did uh at the end of last season with Bertie van wagenen uh and my my conclusion on Bertie van wagenen was that like if Sandy Alderson were coming in and hiring a GM right now, would he even consider Bertie Van Wagenen? No, like he, he would not be a candidate mm-hmm. for that job. So it's probably right for him to move on from him and hire someone else. And that would have been a similar, you know, I would have had the similar first point of that conclusion with Chili Davis in the hitting co- as a hitting coach. If the Mets, if Sandy Alderson and Zach Scott by the time they were in place this offseason, by the time they were the top two baseball decision makers by late January, if they were hiring a hitting coach right then, Chili Davis not only doesn't get hired by them, he probably doesn't get an interview. He's not a candidate for that position. Mm-hmm. The difference is 
when they made that decision with Van Wagenen, that was, you know, the time when you hire a general manager. That's when you can hire a bunch of different people as your general manager. That's when people switch jobs. Uh, when right. you're making that decision in late, if you're, if you're making that decision in late January or February or the first week of May, for instance, uh, with your hitting coach, you don't have a lot of flexibility to who you go to. Uh, and so mm-hmm. I think it is, you know, Scott talked Monday night about not wanting to to burn everything down when he to put the blowtorch uh, on everything uh, right when he came in and kind of wanted to see whether Davis had had adapted in the, the couple of years since he'd been in Boston. You know, that was four years ago. Uh, the sport, you know, launch angle has taken a little bit more of a hold since then. Davis has had multiple jobs since then. He was in Chicago for a year, uh, you know, and, and was fired there. So maybe he had shifted approaches after that in Scott's mind. So he kind of wanted to see him up close and see what was what was different. It, it seems like not enough was different uh, from Chili Davis. But I, I think it, it is worth asking, why didn't they move quicker and it's also worth asking why didn't they wait longer uh it just seemed like you know from the start of the season uh Alderson and Scott this was not the guy they wanted to be their hitting coach necessarily it was not someone they agreed with philosophically about how to approach that job uh and they were going to make a move on him as soon as they could uh whether that was you know 23 games into the season or whether that was this next off season after the year and I suppose, you know, there's obviously a human element to it. And you can say like, well, it would have been, you know, I, and I don't know what Chili Davis's relationship was like with the with the Mets hitters, but assuming it was strong, then maybe you say, okay, well, it's a, it's a tough message to send to these guys that like we're coming in and we're, we're cleaning house and, you know, we, we're, we're going to be competitive. We're not, we're definitely not rebuilding, but we are going to clean house and, and, and get rid of this guy that you've all come to like and respect and, and value working with. So I get that aspect of it, but it's hard not to look at the Mets, you know, one game below 500 and say, you know, this is a team that got off to a disappointing first month of play and they went looking for a scapegoat and found one in the form of their their hitting coach and assistant hitting coach. Found two, I suppose. Yeah, I mean, when you're when you're firing members of your staff in season, it is almost always there's almost always a scapegoating element to it. Uh, you go back to 2019 when the Mets fired Dave Island and Chuck Hernandez as they're pitching in bullpen coaches in June at a time when like their their entire bullpen core was uh, a struggling Edwin Diaz, a struggling Jerry's Familia, and Robert Kazelman. Like they were throwing Brooks Pounders out there every other game in in key spots because that's who was on the roster. Uh, that didn't seem to be like a coaching problem with the with the uh, depth of their pitching staff at that time. Uh, so there, there is a scapegoating element to it. Uh, the other thing I want to mention is like, I, I understand that, that, um, launch angle is important and, and it's something, um, and, and being totally opposed to it as it seems like, like Davis, uh, generally is, and, and has been on the record about being opposed to, uh, well, you can't is, be, is not I mean, a you, good thing. So just be, be more specific because you can't be opposed to launch angle is just a number, right? It's just a metric. You can't be opposed to the number he's just you're saying he's opposed to the idea of optimizing it yeah he's opposed to trying to hit fly balls you know Mm -hmm. he wants you to try to hit line drives uh and you know i think it's hard for a hitting coach's philosophy to work for every hitter on his roster uh you know like with with rustler there in 2018 uh, you know, talking about the A swing, that is something that helped Brandon Nimmo a lot. That that helped Brandon Nimmo 
reach power in 2018 and have that breakthrough season. It didn't, you know, trying to get his best swing on every pitch didn't make Brandon Nimmo a worse hitter in terms of like striking out more. It didn't change his uh, strike zone discipline. It just allowed him to hit the ball harder when he put it in play and, and hit it for more power. That was a good thing. Other guys on the roster, it, it didn't seem to work as well. Like Michael Conforto was a particularly poor situational hitter in 2018 under Rustler. Uh, and then you get to 2019 and 2020, and you've got Conforto crediting Chili Davis with taking more of an all-fields approach in those situational spots. And Conforto was better in them moving forward and had his best season as a hitter in 2020. And Dom Smith, a guy who kind of got lost when there was an emphasis on power for him, in the minor leagues, uh, kind of lost who he was. You know, I, I did a story on him at the end of last season where he said it was really important to have Chile's old school mindset that was just, you know what, that's the hitter I want to be is the guy who goes to all fields, shows gap power, and I'll hit home runs because I've got the power anyway. I don't need to try to optimize launch angle to hit home runs. And I feel like that's, you know, for Smith, Conforto, for Pete Alonso, those aren't guys who need to be thinking about trying to hit the ball in the air. They do that naturally enough. Um, but there are probably other guys on the roster for whom that doesn't work as well. Uh, and, uh, you know, the biggest one you have to talk about is Francisco Lindor, because mm -hmm. I thought it was interesting when Zach Scott was asked, you know, how much do Lindor's specific struggles play into this decision? He said, you know, it's, it's about building an infrastructure and a support system around hitters when they struggle, because uh, that's when they need the support system the most. And when I, we looked at it, when we made our assessment, we, we decided the support system needed to be better. Um, and, you know, I've, I've covered Chili Davis for a while, actually. This is the seventh season uh, I've, I've covered him in some capacity, which is as much as I've covered any player. And mm -hmm. one of the things that has struck me about him uh, is that he's pretty candid and open when he's not connecting with a player. He did it in Boston with Hanley Ramirez. He said, like, it was difficult to reach him when he was struggling. Uh, and you started to see signs of that with Lindor, a couple weeks ago when, when we had Chile on a, a Zoom uh, and, you know, he was asked, you know, the first couple of questions were about Lindor's struggles. And then he was asked later, like, with so many people struggling, is there one person you're, you're kind of, that, that's in it, that, that's in it, the deepest of the slums, basically? Who, who was having the hardest time on a team where everyone was? Uh, and he said, you know, it was still Lindor and they've got a, they, it didn't sound like they were on the same wavelength yet. And, and I know Davis reached out to, Victor Rodriguez, who was Lindor's assistant hitting coach in Cleveland and had worked with Davis in Boston uh, to get some advice on how to handle him. Uh, and it just seemed like that wasn't working. And uh, it sure does sound like that probably played some role in this, that that there wasn't that immediate connection between Chili Davis and Francisco Lindor. Uh, and that was another reason to kind of expedite the change that the Mets made. And I think from that standpoint, it's a little more justifiable. And I hate to say, you know, you hate to make it about one guy, but Lindor, and, and I, I think we both think he will come around to, again. Like, you know, I always say, it's just, you know, look at look at what he's done in the past and assume it's it's coming back. Baseball players don't just suddenly, at, at his age, fall off the table. Like, it it seems like he has in, the, in this this first month of the year, but it's, it's the first month of the year. He's a good hitter. He's a good player. He's getting adjusted to a new place. Like, this, this type of thing happens. But he is the guy they've invested $341 million in, not Chili Davis, unfortunately. And... And so if you're saying like, okay, well, you know, we need to, f to find, this isn't the hitting coach that's best. We can identify that this is not the guy that's going to work best with our new $341 million investment. 
then I think I can understand saying, okay, like let's let's find someone who can who can help us with this a little bit more. And you hate to put it on Lindor like that and say you're the reason this guy got canned, but if that's the reason, I get it. Yeah, and it'll be interesting to see, uh, you know, what what the new guys are able to do because because Hugh Quattlebaum and Kevin Howard are guys who have not worked with these players in the past. I know Howard was in Cleveland's organization, but as a minor league hitting coach and coordinator, so I. You know, maybe he worked with Lindor a little bit in spring training, but I, I doubt they saw too much of each other. Uh, but he at least worked with the, he at least would have worked with the guys who worked with Lindor well, right? That's like true. A, a, yes. At least there's some connection there. Uh, but neither has been. I, I don't think either has been a major league coach uh, at this point in their until this point in their careers. Quattlebaum had been the Mariners minor league a Mariners minor league hitting coordinator the last three seasons. You know, they were both hired this past winter as part of, of the Mets kind of overhaul of their player development system. Quattlebaum had mm-hmm. been hired to be the director of hitting development, uh, Howard to be the director of player development. Uh, and uh, it was interesting that the Mets, um, a bunch of the hires they made in player development for the highest positions in that that section of the team, that, that department, uh, were hitting guys. Because the other major hire they made was Jeremy Barnes uh, as, I believe it was director of player development initiatives, uh, I don't know the difference between all of these different titles uh, or the distinctions between them. Uh, he was also a hitting coordinator in Houston's uh, minor league system. So they, they were all hitting guys. Uh, and, and I thought it was interesting. I think it was Tim Healy of Newsday who asked Monday night, like, did you hire a bunch of these guys as hit, <laughs> with hitting backgrounds because you thought you might be replacing the hitting coach? Uh, and, and Zach Scott said, absolutely not. It just worked out that way. Those, those were the best guys for the job. Uh, but it will be interesting to see how quickly those guys can can learn uh, their their new their new group of players because you know when the Mets made those those pitching coach changes in 2019 they were the guys they were bringing in were all guys who had multiple years of experience in that organization you know mm-hmm. Phil Regan had been around the the Mets organization for a long time and had known a lot of those players coming up uh, Jeremy Accardo had been there for a little bit knowing some players coming up and, and Ricky bonus was just coming back as the bullpen coach. Uh, so that there was some experience there. Like when the Red Sox moved on from Chili Davis, the guy they hired to replace him had been in their organization for a, a, a good period of time before that uh, in Tim hires. So uh, it, it, they've got to hit the ground running right away. And the Mets have to do some shuffling in their player development as the minor league season gets underway Tuesday night uh, that they've got to do some, some winging it on the fly here at multiple levels. And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. You see this? A family watching baseball on DirecTV with no satellite dish in sight. Let's heckle them. You call that changing the channel? Choke up on the remote, buddy. I hope getting all these games on DirecTV makes up for your mother not pre-chewing your sunflower seeds. DirecTV has the most MLB games. Call 1-800-DIRECTV. Claim based on total games carried on sports networks. Sports availability varies by zip code and requires choice package. Terms and restrictions apply. Looking for the best place to buy tickets for any of your favorite teams or sporting events? We've got the spot. Our partner, StubHub, has been the leading ticket marketplace in the world for over 20 years, providing a 100% guarantee with every order. From a worldwide selection of live events, the widest choice of tickets and industry-leading partnerships, StubHub has what you need to purchase with confidence. StubHub, an official partner of The Athletic. If you had told me that Donnie Stevenson was the name of the Mets' new hitting coach 
And Hugh Quattlebaum was the name of a guy the Mets had made up and were pretending was their new hitting coach. I think I would have more readily believed that than vice versa. <laughs> it's funny because uh, so Hugh's uh, brother Gus Gus Quattlebaum uh, is in the red in the Red Sox front office. So I've I've been familiar with the last name Quattlebaum. Uh, you know when, the Quattlebaums well. When, when when the Mets hired him, uh, my first reaction was. Well, I sure do hope this is Gus's brother or something. Like, I don't want a second Quattlebaum family uh, running around in Major League Baseball. Uh, the interesting fact that uh, our Finnish listeners will really enjoy is that Hugh Quattlebaum once won a dunk contest in the nation of Finland, uh, huh. which uh, I learned in a fantastic story written about him by Corey Brock. He's our Mariners writer, uh, and he wrote, I think it was last spring, about... Hugh Quattlebaum and Edwin Encarnacion being featured on the same baseball card, one of those like next generation or prospects yeah. card, because Quattlebaum, uh, you know, was was drafted in the minor leagues uh, and a prospect of, I guess, some merit at the time. Uh, but the various avenues his career had taken him, which included attempting to be a professional basketball player overseas uh, and and winning that dunk contest in Finland, and also I believe trying to be a stand up comedian for a brief period of time. So. Uh, it is, he is an interesting character for sure with a name that the Mets fan base already loves. He sounds interesting. I, I, I can't dunk, right? So like already he's cooler than I am. Um, on the note of, of multiple, I, I, this is so completely unrelated. I don't even know if it's worth bringing up. I have 100 rookie cards, uh, that I bought as an investment in 1992, an unsuccessful one, unfortunately, that feature... Well, uh, my brother and I bought them because the Yankees had just called up a pitcher named Sam Militello who made like five brilliant starts and then never did anything again. Uh, but we were like, oh, we're getting in on the ground floor with Sam Militello. And so now I have 100 rookie cards of Sam Militello, Roger Salkold, who was not a guy who ever did a lot in the major leagues, but also Pat Mahomes and Turk Wendell. So I'm pretty happy about how that turned out. They, we were not buying them from Pat Mahomes and Turk Wendell, but those are beloved Mets of my of my of the late 90s and and early aughts so um you know all all praise to those multiple rookie cards like we all remember the I don't remember his name but there's like the the other guy on the Tom Seifer rookie card and uh I think it's Nolan Ryan and Jerry Kuzman were on the same rookie card which is a, a real good one uh always a always a fun connection let's talk a little bit more about uh the Mets coaching staff because I think that, you know, now overshadowed by this turnover are some questions here about uh, the managerial decisions in the last few games. Yeah, I think there are, let, let's talk about three different decisions, two in-game, one, one outside of it uh, that will go one by one. The first is using Edwin Diaz Sunday night in a four-run game uh, against the Phillies. It, would, it was Diaz's second straight, second straight game uh, pitching. He had pitched Saturday night as well. Um, and, and obviously he, he gave up three runs, nearly four, felt like he gave up three and a half, uh, before mm -hmm. leaving the game with back soreness. Uh, I would not have pitched Edwin Diaz with a four run lead. The fact of the matter is and, that I- And back soreness, right? Because he, I think he, if I read right, he was feeling a little stiff when he went out there. Yes. He, he felt it in warmups. I am not sure how that was communicated to the dugout. I, Fair. You know, Jeremy Hefner came out, uh, after, um- I forget which at bat in that that inning he came out. It was relatively early, but it was before obviously the Hoskins double. Uh, he he came out and talked to him, and that's when 
you know, Diaz talked to Hefner about the back soreness. I don't know if Luis Rojas knew when he was bringing Edwin Diaz into the game that he didn't feel 100% in the dugout. That's fair. Uh, you know, I, I think managers are overly conservative with their closers. They they use them often in four-run games. I, you know, I feel like I, I mentioned my time covering the Red Sox too much already in this podcast. Uh, but, you know, John Farrell, when he was the Red Sox manager, did not bring in his closer once in a four-run game. By the time he brought in his closer, they couldn't stop the Tide. And they, the I believe it was a game in Anaheim. The Angels tied the game and won it in extra innings. Uh, and then for the next four and a half years, when he was manager of the team, he always brought the closer in in a four-run game because one time where it doesn't go right was enough to change his mind. I think the reason they bring their closer in in a four-run game is that Basically, if you bring in an inferior reliever, the Mets probably would have brought in Jairis Familia on Sunday night. He probably would have been the guy you go to in that situation. Uh, you almost inevitably end up getting your closer warmed up anyway. Like if anyone right. reaches base, you've got to have your closer warming up. So why not just bring him in the game anyway? I can see it both ways. I think it would have been preferable for the Mets to use Familia Sunday night in that situation. If anything happens, then you go to Diaz. Uh, and then on Monday, you know, if Familia gets through that inning okay, you've got Diaz available, theoretically, depending on how his back feels. Uh, you've got Diaz available with Castro, and you've only burned Trevor May with back-to-back -back outings. To to have May and Diaz pitch both of them back-to-back Saturday-Sunday uh, in a game that you were winning comfortably by the ninth inning on Sunday, uh, I thought was was not the best strategy. Although, again, I understand why managers do that. Yeah, I didn't, you know, I, it's like an easy thing to say in, in hindsight, like, oh, well, Edwin Diaz got knocked around. You shouldn't have brought him in in that spot. I didn't, when I saw him coming into the game, it wasn't like, oh, wow, what's he doing? Four-run lead. It was just like, okay, like, let's like, you know, let's not mess around here. Just just lock the game down and then worry about tomorrow, tomorrow. We should say, uh, because we've been fairly doom and gloom, and I know that I have been uh, pretty forthcoming about not trusting Familia, and I, I think I... To some extent, I still don't. It's it's seven innings. Familia's been really good. And this bullpen that we were rightfully, I think, very concerned about coming into the season has, of late, outside of Diaz, Castro had a rough outing as well for the first time. But some of the, the less heralded guys in the bullpen, uh, Familia, I mentioned, Aaron Loop has has been uh, has not allowed a, an earned run yet this season. And then in even in the rough, you know, sort of disappointing loss yesterday on, on Monday, uh, you saw another really good, really efficient outing from Sean Reed Foley in a long relief role. And also Robert Gazelman sort of taking on that role and, and pitching well. So for all of the negativity around the Mets right now, I would say that, like, if you had told me that on May 4th, I would be feeling pretty good about the Mets bullpen, then I would have told you that the Mets are, are you know, four games ahead of 500 and, and, and out in first place in the NL East. Yeah, like, I, I haven't checked the bullpen stats in the last couple days, but I, I believe they were, like, leading the league in bullpen ERA not that long ago. That was before Sunday night when, when Castro and Diaz each gave up three runs, uh, which sullied that a little bit. I think they had thrown like 19 straight scoreless innings before that point uh, as well. Uh, so they've gotten, and it, it's been a, a diverse group of, of pitchers. It's not just like they're going to Castro, May, and Diaz, and those guys are pitching well. They generally are, again, Sunday aside. Uh, but you mentioned Gazelman looked really good on Monday night. That He looked about as sharp as he has in a while uh, Reed Foley has looked really good the two times they've used him uh, in Chicago and in St. Louis. 
Uh, Loop has been kind of sparingly used, but effective when used since opening day. Uh, even Jacob Barnes, after a few rough outings, has looked not has has looked better uh, the last mm-hmm. few times out there, like as a, a capable guy when you're down a run to keep it close. So they just overall the bullpen has been in a better spot uh, of late. Uh, the the other in game decision uh, was basically leaving Joey Lucchese in to give up five consecutive hits uh, in the third inning on to on, on Monday night. Uh, and here again, like. I think I was okay with it because in the moment, uh, you know, the way that third inning unra- unraveled for Lucchese, he gets the first two outs. Uh, he gives up, uh, you know, a line drive single the other way uh, to Dylan Carlson. And he gives up kind of the end of the bat looping single to center by Paul mm-hmm. Goldschmidt. Uh, at that point, I probably still don't have anyone up in the bullpen if I'm a manager. Uh, you know, my your thought process at that point if you're Louis Rojas, is probably do I send do I bat Lucchese in the top of the fourth because he was due to lead off the inning and send him back out for the the bottom of the fourth against kind of the bottom half of the St. Louis lineup. And at that point, you know, if he gets Nolan Arenado out, if that 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 churve that two strike churve is a millimeter far farther from Arenado's bat, and if you didn't uh, hear it, uh, Tomas Nito did say did tell Lucchese after the game that, that Arenado did tip that ball. It was a good call by home plate mm-hmm. umpire Mark Carlson. Uh, he, he gets out of that inning. Yeah, you send him back out for the fourth, and you might, you know, you need innings that night. Uh, your bullpen is, is shallow, and you might even consider sending him out to the fifth until he gets to that lineup a third time, and that's when you bring in Gazelman or Reed Foley. Arenado hits the home run, changes the whole calculation. At that point, you're not bringing him back out for the fourth inning. That's when you get Gazelman going. In my mind, that that's the first time in that inning where I said you've got to get a guy up, and then he gives up the uh, the back to back doubles. The first double to to Paul DeYoung was on the third pitch, I believe, uh, maybe the fourth pitch. Uh, but that's not enough time to get Gazelman into the game right. in time for Tyler O'Neill. I think the snowball happens so fast. You know, the Arenado home run and the two doubles happen in a span of about five or six minutes, uh, and I just think that that was not enough time to get Gazelman up and ready to face Tyler O'Neill, which is when you would have wanted him in the game. But it does sort of draw into focus Lucchese, who, I mean, to put it nicely, has, has, has not, has not been, has not performed well. I, there's not a good way to put it nicely. He, right. He has a, a and, and it's 10 innings. It's, it's nothing, but he has allowed 12 earned runs in those 10 innings and, and uh, been hit pretty hard. Can you, Give me an update on the starters in waiting. Yeah, so, uh, well, I, I just want to say, first off, um, you know, Lucchese's had a tendency now for the beginning. That's that's the third different inning in which he's given up at least three runs this season. Mm-hmm. So so maybe uh, <laughs> me and me theoretically playing out that inning and, and Luis Rojas should have been quicker uh, in, in envisioning that. I, again, I'm not putting uh, this one on you. I'm not. Yeah, I'm not. I'm not going to crush him for that. I do think it's worth wondering why he was the guy rather than than Jordan Yamamoto, uh, just based off of the St. Louis lineup. Uh, St. Louis is is a predominantly right-handed team. Uh, you know, that they, they had. I, I think it was two switch hitters and then six right-handed hitters as their mm-hmm. regular lineup last night. Maybe uh, if you start Yamamoto, they they start Matt Carpenter, uh, who has, is off to a terrible start, but but did have a, a good weekend for St. Louis. Um, and, and Yamamoto, uh, this is more anecdotal, but like his first two career starts against the Cardinals in 2019 were his, maybe his best starts of his career. 
Uh, I think he went six or seven innings shutout both times. Uh, so has some success against that roster. Uh, that seemed like it might have been the better play, whereas the Mets chose kind of start with the lefty and then you hit them with the righties, righty long men out of the bullpen, uh, and that clearly didn't work out. Um, in terms of the guys coming back, Carrasco, Carlos Carrasco is set to throw a six-inning simulated game on Tuesday. Um, looking at Come the- on. Bring him back. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Six innings? That's a start. That's a start. Just bring him back. Let, like, you should let him throw four. And I mean, I, what's What am I missing here? Looking at the Mets' schedule, they will need ah. a fifth starter one more time. Uh, you know, like they'll, they'll need a fifth starter uh, on Saturday, April 8th. So Carrasco will not be ready for that. So that will be Lucchese or, or someone at, or Yamamoto, presumably. Uh, and that's against Arizona. And then after that, they've got since they've got two days off next week, they don't need a fifth starter again until April 19th. Uh, so I think that May would be probably... Or I sorry, assume you mean May 19th. One, two, three, four. Yes, yeah. I mean May 18th, actually. <laughs> okay. Well, we were close. We were in the ballpark. You've got you know, it within look, a month. I'm looking at the schedule. They're playing Atlanta. It's a big A. It's a big A yeah. on the schedule. <laughs> I thought April. Uh, so that May 18th, that would be when I would think Carrasco, within that turn, kind of that May 14th to May 18th area, that's probably when you see him back uh, uh, starting in the rotation. So you, you basically need one more start from your fifth starter. Uh, until then, uh, and then Noah Syndergaard still still June, still broadly June, probably mid June, more so than early June. Uh, Seth Lugo is late May. They believe he'll be back by the end of the month. Uh, he's just about to face hitters for the first time. Uh, I think that's your injury update, du jour. Don't just ride the index; seek to outperform it with Fidelity Active ETFs. Learn more at fidelity.com/active-etfs. Before investing in any exchange-traded fund, you should consider its investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Contact Fidelity for a prospectus, an offering circular, or if available, a summary prospectus containing this information. Read it carefully. While active ETFs offer the potential to outperform an index, these products may more significantly trail an index as compared with passive ETFs. Fidelity Brokerage Services LLC, member NYSE SIPC. Uh, I appreciate it. We have a good question. It's a it's a, a long email from TD in Torrance, California. And normally with the long emails, I, I sort of uh, summarize, but it's a very well crafted email. So I, I wanna I wanna give give TD his time here um, because I think if he had cut if he had cut to the chase, I probably would have dismissed it out out of hand. But he, um, I'll read it to you. He says, Ted. I coached high school baseball for 20 years. I read every one of Tim's columns. I followed you on social media and read your columns for years. I have a grasp on analytics and can hear your small sample size song playing in the background while I craft this email. So TD has established his credentials here, right? <laughs> he says, I realize guys don't make it to the bigs without being able to handle pressure, something that we brought up a bunch of times before on this show. Yet, he says, I have a hot take about this core group of Mets players that I can't shake. He is recognizing that this might be uh count run might run counter to some of the things we believe and some maybe the things some of the, some of the things he believes about baseball he says i think the mets are lesser than the sum of their parts the explanation for this is simple they're soft they're all a bunch of nice guys the cookie clubs guys that get pushed around and just take it guys that get friend zones the Mets need some bad guys to balance out the roster. The game in Philly last night, he wrote this a few days ago, uh, made me come to this realization. I couldn't figure out the running and scoring runners in scoring position problems. The feeling I get when I just know Conforto, Alonzo, McCann, Nimmo, etc. isn't getting a hit with two out and two on, or that Diaz will pitch well on low leverage but then blow the meaningful game. When Alvarado struck out Dom and started chirping, the Mets wanted no part of a bench-clearing fight. 
Then they lost the game, followed by tough guy talk in the postgame presser. Those are the actions of a gutless ball club. Where's the Ray Knight on this team? The Todd Pratt, the Paul LaDuca. I think the Mets lose because they get bullied. I have felt for a long time that these guys underperform when the chips are down and then clean up their stats in September against call-ups when the team is 10 games out. Of course, I realize that this argument could easily be refuted by statistics and is probably ridiculous. The core group hasn't really done it yet, and I have a sinking feeling in my gut that it isn't in them. Will they prove me wrong? <laughs> uh, I, I feel like the players would not like me saying that they're they're the types of people who'd get friend zone. I feel like the players' wives and girlfriends probably are, would yeah. would take that even, even and harder. I'm just gonna I'm just gonna extrapolate backwards for or out from from uh from like my experience in high school and college and I not not myself being an elite athlete, but seeing the elite athletes like. They're not people that frequently get bullied or called soft or get friend zoned, right? Like that all every it's easy to remember, not every guy on the Mets is the best player in the major leagues. Every single guy on in the major leagues was by far the best athlete in his high school, right? And like the coolest guy, most likely, because uh that is how social tiers are usually constructed in high school. So I don't know. I think I think T D maybe had had his tongue a little bit in cheek for some of that. Um, but his point is that, you know, is one that's, that's harder to answer to. And, and, and it's, you know, like we, I poo poo clubhouse chemistry a lot. Um, my take is always like guys get along really well when they're playing well. And when your job is to win baseball games and you can't do it, you're not going to, it's not going to be as pleasant an environment. Is there a case for a red ass here in, in baseball terms? The, the, the guy who's going to be, not so nice and not so committed to cookies and 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 again like I'm not I'm not making this case but uh do you think that this is a and and it's tough for us to say because we're not in the clubhouse now right like we don't even have whatever glimpses we do get of of the chemistry behind the scenes but is there a voice that's missing here for for these Mets you know I I think to actually to to make that argument substantively you just need more time like we just you know the this core group has been together for what uh, a season and a half, basically. You, you, you say from the start of 2019, uh, they, they found their stride in the second half of 2019. Uh, but at the same time, you the, the front office has changed. You know, the manager has changed a few times. The front office has changed a few times. Uh, there hasn't been a lot of continuity through that. You had a, a very weird 2020 season that I wouldn't extrapolate really much of value from uh, in terms of. of kind of a team's um, <laughs> gutlessness or gutfulness. Um, because, like, you know, like, like I just think back to Wilson Ramos's 2020 season, and he's just talking about how, like, how hard it is to play baseball when you're in a slump and you go home and you're living in a hotel without your family. Uh, like, I'm not going to take anything out of that about a team's relative level of heart. Uh, I also think that a lot of times, like, these arguments are made all the time uh, and they're right until a team wins the World Series or something. Like, they're hard to right. prove wrong because you've got to win the whole thing. And winning the whole thing is really difficult. But uh, the Red the Sox... The odds are heard... very long against you, for sure. Yeah. The Red Sox heard the same thing in 2016 and 2017. Like, Mookie Betts was not a clutch player. Mookie Betts couldn't come through in the postseason. Even when the 108-win Red Sox won the World Series in 2018, Mookie Betts didn't do enough in that postseason to, to change his reputation. And so then he had to win another World Series and have a have a very good postseason for the 2020 Dodgers. Like David Price couldn't do it in the postseason until he did. Uh, 
you know, Kenny Rogers couldn't do it in the postseason until he did in 2006. You see this in all sports, uh, mm-hmm. you know, in college basketball, like Villanova could never get it done in the in March Madness, and they won two championships in three years. People say it about Gonzaga right now. Uh, they're going to be proven wrong in the next couple of years. Uh, people said it about Virginia, proven wrong the next the next tournament. Uh, I, I just I don't think there are certain teams that are built that are constitutionally inadequate for winning uh, when they have the talent. Uh, maybe it would help to bring in the quote unquote red ass. Uh, I haven't been, I haven't covered a team where that dynamic really played out. Um, you know, like, well, I mean, Johnny Gomes was a guy that a lot of people credited with like in like, and I've read, like, I forget, I think it was Brandon McCarthy, like baseball players who are generally like pretty analytic friendly and, and not, and, and like sort of on the same uh wavelength as me in in these things who have then said like no 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 like you can say like you can point to a few of these guys and johnny gomes is the one that that jumps into my head as like he i think it was brandon mccarthy said like he won us three games just not not with his play just by being this like crazy in your face johnny gomes guy yeah and i I was gonna say like the the one that that maybe jumps out is the 2013 red sox because I wouldn't have said that. I mean, that was a team that needed a complete overhaul after the way 2011 and 2012 went. It wasn't just like, we've got all the talent here. We just need a, a guy to really spark us. Let's sign Johnny Gomes, and that's it. Uh, they needed to do a lot of different things. But they did target guys uh, who, uh, you know, I think the way they explained it at the time was like guys who were going to embrace the challenge of playing in Boston mm-hmm. rather than kind of lament the media pressure. So that was... Guys like Shane Victorino, like Johnny Gomes, like David Ross. Yeah, as you see, David Ross was on that team too. Yeah, and that worked out really well for. I mean, those guys not only provided like a clubhouse presence, uh, but they were really good on the field for them as well that season. Uh, so you know, I, I don't. Right. Think I remember. That... I remember hearing a whole lot about what Alex Cora was going to bring to the Mets clubhouse, and whatever it was did not translate to the standings. Look, would Johnny Gomes make a terrific Donnie Stevenson? Yes. I think if, if you wanted to make John, Donnie Stevenson a real-life person, you bring in Johnny Gomes to be like your, you know, whatever enthusiasm you coach. give him. <laughs> coach of keeping it real or whatever. Yeah, uh, I like that idea. I like that idea. I mean, why not, right? Is there a limit? Just bring in more guys. What's Johnny Gomes doing right now that's so important? He can't be on the Mets payroll. Probably I like that idea just because I'd get to talk to Johnny Gomes again. He was uh, he was fantastic. He was he was such a great guy to talk to in the clubhouse after a game because it didn't matter like what had happened. He'd be super excited about something that happened in the game uh, that you could break down. You know, maybe, maybe they do need a guy like that. Uh, it's tough for that guy to be a pitcher. It's tough for that guy to be a guy who doesn't play all the time. Uh, like, you know, uh, I don't know Kevin Pillar well enough to know his personality, whether it fits that kind of role. But it's tougher to do when you're playing on a part-time basis. Uh, so, I mean, you know, I remember, I, and I'll, I'll give her, if, you know, if, if there's anything to the idea that like the media pressure can get overwhelming, I, I mean, I, it's a funny guy to go back to, but like, I remember when Jeff Francoeur was on the Mets, it was like, it didn't matter what Jeff Francoeur did in that game. Jeff Francoeur was so good to the press and like such a, a nice guy to talk to that, the first big scrum after every single game was just everyone gathered around Jeff Rancor waiting to hear what he was going to say, have to say, or even just his pleasantries. And so, like, maybe there's something to be said for that, like, sort of taking the heat off you a, a little bit. 
But I, I think you, you said it exactly right. I think there's there's really no way to predict for these things. And it's really, it's a it's a it's something that's always going to be impossible to prove one way or the other until a team does it. Yeah, it's funny. The, the 2009 Mets Clubhouse was the first one I was in as a reporter. Uh, and so I, you know, the way that Clubhouse operated, uh, especially after everyone got hurt, was you talked to Frank Hoare, uh, and you talked to the pitcher. You might talk to Brian Schneider, the catcher, depending on how the pitcher did. And then you waited for David Wright. And those were the guys you talked to every game. Uh, and so when I covered the, the Yankees as an intern the following season, uh, my assumption was that like we were going to talk to Derek Jeter every game, uh, after every game. No. Uh, and, you know, you would talk to him. Not if you want to hit a deadline. <laughs> one, right? Once or twice a home, you know, once or twice a homestand. And that's how that I mean, that was what was normal. Like David Wright talking after every game was not normal. Uh, mm -hmm. You know, covering the covering Boston, you didn't talk to David Ortiz and Dustin Pedroia after every game. Like with the Mets now, you don't talk to under, you know, in 2019, you didn't talk to Pete Alonzo and Michael Conforto after every game. Like that, that's just the way it works. But when you have a guy like uh, a Johnny Gomes or a Jeff Francoeur uh, or a Nick Swisher to some extent, like those are guys who kind of the best who give you Nick fun Swisher. quotes about other players, uh, which is always a nice thing to have. Uh, and, and guys, you do, you know, role players, you probably go to more as a media member than you would otherwise because of their personality. But again, this is like sort of hyping up our own role in the baseball universe, because like I'm I am very reluctant to suggest that media has anything to do with with how a team performs on the field, especially in the current situation. Like right. they, don't, you, no they don't one's see us really. Uh, you know, we are uh, right. ethereal Zoom presence. Jim, I didn't like your I didn't like your tone on the phone call yesterday, so I'm going 0 for 4 today. <laughs> I didn't like that you turned your camera off because otherwise your internet was going to slow down too much. Yeah. Um, if you, I don't know what I was going to say. Oh, I was going to say let's just wrap up and say that it, thank you for listening, and please rate, review, and subscribe to the Metrospective on all of your various podcast formats. Tim, later in the week, ideally, we will speak again without changes in the coaching staff because the Mets will have only one between now and then. Yeah, let's uh, let's see if that happens. You know, we've 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 talked about why they shouldn't do things, and then they do those things. So uh, say, uh, let's not let's try hey, not to jinx anything. Don't win the next ten games. Don't. They're not going to do it. They're not going to go on a crazy winning streak right now. Oakland A's uh, money ball style and win 23 in a row and have that count for a movie championship, if not a real one. Hey, Lindor's done that before. <laughs> there you go. Uh, Tim, thanks as always, and peace out. Adios. As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. 
See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager.